Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Today, as we are continuing our series through Luke's Gospel, we, Lord willing, will be closing out this chapter, beginning to read in verse 21, and reading to the end of the chapter, verse 38. And yes, we are going to read the genealogy. Uh, so chapter 3, uh, this is the baptism of Christ. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, and then immediately after, uh, the record of Christ's genealogy, reading through verse 38. You can find that reading on page 859 of our church Bibles. Before we go to read God's Word together, please join me uh, as we go to Him in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, again we come and praise you for your kindness to us, your kindness to reveal yourself to us, not only in creation and providence, but especially and directly by your word. Thank you for this true, inerrant word of revelation of Christ our Savior. Thank you for this record of his humanity. Thank you for this record of his divinity. And help us uh, by your spirit to grapple with uh, the union of those two in one perfect person, our Savior and mediator, Christ Jesus. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to see more of him and to rejoice in our Savior, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arkpachad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy 
and an errant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Now, uh, if you ever uh, come to visit our home, chances are at some point we will offer you something to drink. And if ever in our home you need to put that drink down, chances are we will offer you a coaster. Coasters are the sort of thing that everybody has, nobody really thinks about. The kind of thing that you get as a housewarming gift, it's sort of a throwaway, a nice little thing to have. It's, uh, they're the sort of thing that you buy in a set of eight on a whim as you're walking through home goods. And I don't think anybody has ever said, you know, those coasters really tie the room together. <laughs> the sort of thing that everybody's got and, and nobody thinks about. But in our house, coasters are special. That's because in our house, all of the coasters are hand-knitted. And all of them are different. No two of them are like. They come in slightly different sizes and different colors with different shapes, different patterns. Some are lacy and some are plain. My wife, of course, is the knitter in our household. But to my knowledge, she has never sat down with the intention of making 11 slightly different coasters. She has, however, sat down with the intention of knitting a sweater and hats and scarves and all sorts of other things. And, and the thing is that before you invest 60 hours in knitting a sweater, you had better be sure that you've got the right size yarn and the right gauge needle and all that other sort of thing because if any of those little variables are off, by the time you get to the end of the sweater, it could be a real mess. And you could waste the time and the talent and all the money that you've invested getting uh, to the end of it. So before you begin a project, you knit what is called a, squ a swatch. Not a squatch, but a swatch. It's about a, a four-inch uh, square of fabric. And it so perfectly matches the end result that I suppose if you wanted to at Christmas time, you could take the sweater and, and the swatch and you could wrap them up together and give them as a, a sort of matching sweater coaster gift set if you wanted to. But we, we don't do that. Instead, we've got these swatches all over our house. And they're really the, the perfect uh, coaster. Uh, they're just the right size. But each one of these coasters, these swatches, is the record of laying the groundwork for something much larger. It's a record of setting the pace for something else, of seeing a preview of what is to come. And by now you've guessed that this is exactly what we're seeing in our passage today with Christ. This very small swatch of the beginning of his earthly ministry. We see Christ at his baptism. We see Christ and the Father, Christ and the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, and he is setting the pace for what he's about to do in the world. Luke has spent now three chapters priming the pump in a sense. He's been introducing Jesus and introducing Jesus and telling us about Jesus uh, by the voice of the angels and by the voice of the shepherds and by the voice of the Baptist. And finally, we're seeing Christ stepping onto the stage and into the ministry that he's been waiting for for an eternity plus 30 years. And finally, he's introducing Jesus into his earthly ministry and we're watching it. And just a small piece, and the small piece of Christ's ministry that we see today in this passage is a microcosm. It's a pattern, if you will, a preview of, of who Jesus is and how he works and why he has come. And in the 18 verses that we've just read, we're, we're going to see a preview of everything else that will come in the next 21 chapters. And let me suggest today that in our passage, we're going to see four characteristics that define Jesus' ministry. Four characteristics that define 
Jesus' ministry. Now, they all show up in the context of Jesus' baptism. But what's interesting about Luke is just how little emphasis he puts on the baptism itself. You know that, that all of the New Testament gospel writers give us the same account of Jesus, but from a different angle, slightly. And so some of them will emphasize, some of them will leave out certain details that fit uh, the picture that they want us to see, a different aspect, a different nuance about who Christ is and what he has done. And the account of Jesus' baptism shows up in all four of the Gospels. But of all of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, it is Luke who puts the least emphasis on the moment of washing. Luke doesn't tell us, as Mark does, that it is John who actually does the washing. By the time we get to the baptism in Luke, John is off the scene. And he doesn't give us that exchange that shows up in Matthew chapter 3 about why Jesus should be baptized by John and not the other way around. He doesn't give us that detailed witness of John the Baptist where he stands on the banks of the Jordan and Christ comes down and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Luke, the baptism isn't actually the focus. So it recedes into the background. The focus for, for Luke, yes, baptism is important, but the focus, the most important detail, has to do with what the Trinity is doing together at the baptism. That's what we're seeing here. You know, all the Gospels tell us that these things happen as Jesus was coming up from the water. But only Luke is the one who tells us that as Jesus was coming up from the water, he was doing something else. He was praying. You see it there in verse 21, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. That's when this happens. It happens when the Son is praying, and the Spirit is descending, and the Father is declaring. And we're seeing here in this moment Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the entire Trinity, together in harmony in the ministry that Jesus is stepping into. And the first ministerial action that Luke records Jesus accomplishing is the action of prayer. This actually is our first point. The first characteristic that, that determines, that defines Jesus' earthly ministry is that in his ministry, Jesus was steeped in prayer. Constantly in communion with his heavenly Father. He was always pouring out his heart, always calling for the Father's help, always submitting to the Father's leadership. And this is indicative, especially in Luke. Luke points out Jesus' prayer more than any of the other gospel writers. At every momentous occasion, at every single turning point, we find Jesus in Luke's gospel praying. He's praying at his baptism. When the crowds begin to press in and he has no time to himself, Jesus goes off into the desolate places by himself to pray for a while. We find Jesus in Luke's gospel praying all night before he chooses his disciples. It was in the context of private prayer that Jesus asked his followers who they thought he was. It was in the context of prayer on the top of a mountain that Jesus was transfigured and Jesus prayed for Peter that he should not be sifted by Satan. He prayed in the agony of Gethsemane as he submitted his will to the Father. Jesus is the praying Savior. That's what we find. At all times, in every way, in every circumstance, Jesus is steeped in prayer. This is the first characteristic of Jesus' earthly ministry. It is full of prayer from beginning to end. And I'll be honest. 
I don't know exactly how it works. Somebody, of course, will stop me at the end of the service and say, well, how is it that, that one member of the Trinity prays to another member of the Trinity? How is it that the Son, who is perfect union, has the same will as the Father, somehow communicates with the Father or with the Spirit? And let me tell you at the beginning, I don't know. I, I can't tell you the inner workings of the mystery of the Godhead and how they communicate with one another, but you don't need to know how it works to open your Bible and to see Christ praying and to see this wonderful beauty of the unity of the Godhead in the ministry of redemption. That's what this is showing us. You know, some Christians sometimes get this false idea that what Jesus has come to do is to, to engage in some sort of rogue ministry all on his own, that there's a sort of good cop, bad cop dynamic happening between the Son and the Father. Well, you know, God, the Father, is really vengeful and wrathful, and so what Jesus has to do is he has to come and he has to rescue his little lambs before the Father can get his hands on them in wrath. That's not what's happening here. The Son and the Father are in perfect union, perfect communion at all times. Absolutely united. Jesus has not come to frustrate the plans of an angry God. We see in his prayer life that he's come to fulfill the purposes of the God of compassionate love. He's come to redeem those whom the Father has called to himself and chosen before the foundation of the world. And in Jesus' prayer life, as simple as it seems, this one little mark, but we're going to see it all throughout the gospel, in Jesus' prayer life, what we see is the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as we go along and as we see Jesus praying more and more, my guess is that what we will also see in Jesus' prayer life is rebuke of our prayerlessness. If Jesus Christ, the perfect divine Son of the Father. If Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, if Jesus Christ lived his earthly life in constant need of prayer, how foolish. How arrogant do we have to be to glibly push it to the periphery of our lives? How faithless to take prayer and make it the sort of thing that we are only ever pressed into by some extreme circumstance. How sinful not to be regularly refreshing our souls at God's fountain of mercy through prayer. Not just here in this passage, but dear believer, as we go through Luke's gospel, I want to challenge you to make Jesus your example in prayer. Go to God in the quiet hour. Go to God in the desolate places. Go to him with your frustrations and your failures and your fears. Go to him in thanksgiving and petition and bathe your entire life and all of your friendships and your family and your work and every aspect of all that you are and all that you do, bathe it in prayer. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus is still doing. When we look at our own prayer lives and we feel rebuked, Let's remember that Jesus is still the praying Savior. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for his saints. His saints who are sluggish in prayer. His saints who are, are pressed down and, and weighed down by their own sin and feel like, I, I, I can't speak to the Lord. 
Do I see what I've done with my life? Do I see what's, what's become of these things? And yet the Lord is praying and interceding. At the right hand of the Father, he still takes up the cause of his children. Because that's a characteristic of his ministry. From the very first moment until the end of eternity, Jesus' ministry is steeped in prayer. That's the first characteristic that we see. Secondly, though, we see that, that Jesus in his ministry is anointed by the Spirit. Take a look again at the text. It tells us that uh, as Jesus prays, uh, the heavens are opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. This is also uh, only in Luke that he uses this term in bodily form. This is a fascinating detail. There is only one other place in Scripture that we find the manifestation of the Spirit connected with a visible form. It happens on the day of Pentecost. When the believers are all gathered together in an upper room and the doors are shut and we read in, in Acts chapter 2 that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that, too, was a momentous occasion. It was another new beginning in the life of the ministry of Christ and his people. It was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. You remember in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus told them to wait because they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And so this was a new thing. At first they had not had the Spirit, and now they had the Spirit. It had come upon them and it had been manifested among them. And they were empowered by the coming of the Spirit for the ministry that they were called to. Now we take this big long rabbit trail all to get to the question of asking that at Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit descends in visible form, is this Jesus' first experience with the Spirit? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. Maybe in some, in some small sense, because of this new uh, time in his ministry, there's a different concentration of the Spirit. Maybe we could say it that way. That's what Luke says at the beginning of the very next passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. That's a new term. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So, so maybe there's something a little bit different, but we have to say fundamentally, of course, that Jesus has never been without the Spirit. Even from the moment of his very conception, it was the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary in her womb that made his miraculous conception possible. The first three chapters, by the way, a subtext of the first three chapters in Luke is to show us the superiority of Jesus over John. He is the forerunner, but Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who cries out, but Christ is the one whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. And it told us earlier that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. By necessary inference, Christ is far more superior, not just from the womb, but the very moment of conception was by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' entry into the world is, is with the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit and accompanied by the Holy Spirit. It was the wisdom of the Spirit and a 12-year-old Jesus that made him recognize that when he was in the temple, he was in his father's house, and everyone else stood around and said, where does he get such learning? From the Holy Spirit, of course. 
And so that means that in, in Luke chapter 3, when the Spirit descends in visible form that others could see, we find in the other Gospels, that even though this descent of the Spirit is visible, it is not new. And do you understand what that means? That means that the Holy Spirit descended in visible form not just for Jesus' benefit, but for our benefit. Not just so that Jesus would know that he had received the Holy Spirit, but so that we would know that Jesus has received the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism is a public anointing. It is a visible declaration. The invisible Spirit took on bodily form for the sake of God's people in order to set Jesus apart as the one whom God has chosen and empowered for the work of salvation. It may come as a shock to you to hear that I have never been arrested. But, even though I've never been arrested, I have watched enough of those television crime dramas uh, to recognize that cliche of the plain-clothes detective who knocks on the door, and when you open, he reaches dramatically into his coat pocket, and he produces his badge and his ID card. Now, what's the point of that cliche? The point of that cliche is to show the credentials of the officer so that the witness, the, the suspect, whoever it is, so that they know who they're dealing with. It is to demonstrate lawful authority, and that is what the descent of the Spirit on Christ at his baptism is. It's a demonstration of lawful authority of Jesus. He is the one with whom we have to deal. Of course, you know that in ancient Israel, if you were to serve as a king, or if you were to serve as a priest, you had to be anointed. You had to be called by God. You had to be set apart by God. And normally that involved the pouring out of a sacred oil upon the head and it ran down upon the beard. And I can't imagine how anybody would enjoy that. But that's what they did. You anointed with oil and it was a sign of setting apart for some special purpose. Well, here on the banks of the Jordan, God himself is anointing Christ. Not with oil, but with the Spirit. Pouring down upon the head and through the beard and over the robes as as one of the Psalms says of Aaron. God is anointing his son. He's setting him apart in the sight of the multitude so that all will know that he is the Christ. You ever think about that word, that title given to Jesus? Sometimes we, we treat it almost like his last name. Matthew Kerr, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name, it's a title. And the Greek word Christ is the equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. And it simply means the one who is anointed. That's who he is. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the chosen one. The one who bears divine authority to save and defend and deliver his people. But how will we know the one that the Lord has chosen? God will anoint him with the Holy Spirit. That was the promise of Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 says this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Does that sound familiar to you? You're reading Luke chapter 3. My chosen, whom I uphold, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. and He will bring forth justice to the nations. This was also Jesus' declaration in his very first public sermon. Take a look in Luke chapter 4. He goes into Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, we find beginning in verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he looked them in the eye and said, Today it's happened. Here I am. You're looking at the Christ, but how would they know? Well, they know because he is the anointed of the Lord, anointed by the Spirit, without measure. Now, folks, the application for this truth we could be here for years. What does it mean that Christ is the chosen one of the Lord? Let me, suggest, let me just suggest one application of this. Because Jesus bears the divine authority of God, you can take him at his word. It's as simple as that. You can believe him. He is the chosen one of the Lord. He is the one who has been sent as the prophet to reveal the will of God to his people. You can believe all that he has told you. You can believe him when he tells you why he has come into the world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You can believe that. You can believe him when he calls you, calls you to follow him and tells you what it might cost you. You can believe that, that you may be called upon to give up field or house or brother or mother or whatever it may be. You can believe him when he calls you to take up your cross daily and to follow him. You can believe him when he tells you that it may cost you the hatred of men and it may cost you persecution and it may cost you loss of earthly comfort. You can believe him when he tells you that those who lose their lives for Christ's sake will find true life in him. And in the midst of following and being hated and persecuted and whatever else it might cost you, you can believe him when he promises you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That he will be with you even to the end of the age. You can trust Jesus. And all that he said and all of his teaching and his warning and all of his promises of life and redemption and forgiveness in him, you can believe what he has told you because he is the one who is anointed and chosen of the Lord. So Christ in his ministry, he is steeped in prayer. He is anointed of the Lord. And that means that we've got two more points. And I want to consider them together. Because that's the way Luke puts them out for us. He lays them side by side. And so here are the last two points, the two characteristics of Jesus' ministry. That Jesus in his ministry is claimed by the Father. And Jesus in his ministry is numbered with the transgressors. He is claimed by the Father and numbered with the transgressors. Now, the first of those is obvious. It's the culmination of this, this Trinitarian exchange that we're seeing happening in this passage here, that the Son prays, the Spirit descends, the Father declares, and He declares, You are my beloved Son, verse 22. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And it's just one sentence. It's two little clauses squished together with a semicolon. It's just one little sentence. It's not a, some big theological treatise. It doesn't take very long to read it. It's just some finite little statement. But in this simple finite statement is an infinite significance about who Christ is. The Father calls him the Son. And in calling him the Son, the Father of Heaven is declaring Jesus' unique, divine identity. 
This is not sonship as we experience it. We experience sonship. John says in the beginning, to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the right to be called children of God. What a wonderful thing. But children by adoption, as beautiful, as wonderful as that is, as wonderful of a picture of the gospel as adoption is, we experience it by adoption. Jesus experiences sonship naturally, by divine rights, by divine preexistence. This statement, when the Lord says, you are my son, it marks Jesus out as God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Now, we've just gone through the earlier chapters of the Nativity, and we have seen this, and I'm not going to take the time to rehash everything that we've already seen, but what you need to recognize is that when God declares from heaven, you are my son, he is saying of Jesus, he is as God as God is God. We do not believe in some sort of gradation between different beings within the Trinity. We believe in one God in three persons. One in power, one in substance, one in eternity. This is a very significant statement. And we need to recognize that. And we also need to recognize that every single Jew standing on the banks of the Jordan when this was made known, when this declaration happened, every single Jew had the exact same understanding of what God was saying. This is not something that people were confused about. In fact, it is the very statement, Son of God, that leads to Jesus' sentencing at the hands of the Sanhedrin. Turn with me at the end of Luke's Gospel to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read verses uh, 70 and 71. Jesus is before the council, and it says that uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 70, So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. Now the interesting thing here is that that is the last time the phrase Son of God shows up in Luke's gospel. And so far as the Sanhedrin understood the significance of what that meant, they understood it correctly. If Jesus is indeed claiming to be the Son of God, then he is making a claim that he is absolutely equal with Yahweh. And if any other human being in the history of the world made that same claim, they would be liable to the, the charge and the sin of blasphemy. They understood what was happening there. Just as the Jews in John chapter 5 understood. John chapter 5 verse 18 tells us that the Jews sought to kill him all the more. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. They understood exactly what it meant. And we understand what it means. Just as God authenticated Jesus' ministry by the anointing of the Spirit... God at the baptism by the Father is authenticating Jesus' identity by his declaration. He says, this is my son. Same thing will happen in the Mount of Transfiguration, by the way. This is also another major theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Luke. But the only other place in the Gospel of Luke where the heavens are open and a voice descends into humanity from the clouds, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 35, the Father declares to Peter and James and John, what does he say? This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. 
So what is it that God wants us to know about Jesus? Well, a lot of things. A lot of things God wants us to know about Jesus, but it all starts with one thing, that Jesus is the Son. That he is the unique divine Son of the Father, and so God claims him. He claims him from heaven, and he tells us how much he delights in Jesus. There is nothing displeasing about his Son. Jesus is the Son who always lives to do the will of the Father. And we've seen him now. He's about 30 years of age, says Luke, but he's been growing for 30 years in perfect holiness and perfect love for God and perfect charity toward man. And he is the only person who has ever lived since the fall in the garden who is able to stand before God the Father in his own merits and not be consumed by divine glory. He is utterly perfect and completely and completely pleasing in every way, and that's what makes Luke's next step so significant. Notice what happens between verses 22 and 23. Luke moves from Jesus, who is the perfect, pleasing Son of God, to Jesus, as was supposed, he says, as was supposed the son of Joseph. And then he lists for us 75 other names, tracing the record of Jesus and his family through the entire sordid history of human sin and death. And the connection between the two, the connection between Jesus at the baptism and that genealogical record there is that question, whose son is he? Now, I need to confess to you that selfishly what I want to do in verses 23 through 38 is that I want to go through this genealogy in grueling detail. I do. I I really do. I want to stretch it into a sermon series that will take us beyond Christmas because you may be aware that preaching through genealogies in depth is how Presbyterian pastors prove that they're really serious. (laughs) And the fact is that the last time we encountered a genealogy in Genesis, I took the easy way out. So I still have not uh, gotten my genealogical merit badge. And I want to just slow down and I want to take it slowly And I want to show you, play by play, a reenactment of Joseph and where his family has come from. And that's what I want to do, but I can't. Not because we don't have time. Not because I don't want to, but because we can't. The reality is that the vast majority of these 75 names represent men about which we know almost nothing. Nothing. Almost nothing. I can't tell you about Ma'at, the son of Matthias, in In verse 26, I can't tell you about Kosam, the son of Elmadam, because we don't know anything about those men. We don't know where they lived. We don't know how many children they had. We don't know if they were faithful or wicked. We don't know anything about them. Now, of course, there are are men in here that we do know quite a bit about. There's Boaz, and there's David, and there's Abraham, and Adam, and, and, and these men represent some of the best of the fathers of the faith. And if we wanted to, we could take a lot of time and we could deal with that nagging question of why is this genealogy so different from the genealogy that we find in Matthew? As a sidetrack, by the way, the, the quick answer to that is that it seems that, that Luke is tracing the, the most direct natural genealogy of Christ, whereas Matthew is tracing out the descendants of David and the, uh, those who are in line for the kingdom to establish that Jesus actually is the Messiah. And somewhere along, all of those genealogical records converge. And I, I could give you, if you want, uh, several commentaries that will give you a much, much, much longer version of that same answer. So we could go in depth, but the point is that none of those details is the point. 
Elmadam and, and, and Kosem and, and Mattathias, and none of these men are the point in and of themselves. The point is that with this genealogy, Luke is showing us again the pre-existent, perfect son of God who's entered into the sordid history of human sin and death. And God has placed himself in the person of Jesus smack in the middle of one generation begetting another generation and passing off into the realm of Sheol. And you could trace it all the way back to Adam and all the way back to that first rebellion in the garden. And the point is that we see Jesus in this genealogy, the Son of God who came to be numbered with the transgressors. That, by the way, is how Luke answers the question of why Jesus should submit to baptism at all. He didn't need to be cleansed. He didn't need to be forgiven. But he did come to identify himself with the people that he came to save. And Christ came to unite himself to our humanity, to to experience our death. He came to be washed with waters of repentance that he did not need so that he might wash his people with the atoning sacrifice of his blood. Listen to the way J.C. Ryle comments on this long list of Luke's genealogy. Excuse me. He says, How little we know of many of the 75 persons whose names are here recorded. They all had their joys and sorrows. They had their hopes and fears, their cares, troubles, their schemes and plans like any of ourselves. But they've all passed away from the earth and they've gone to their own place and so it will be with us. We too are passing away and will soon be gone, he says, but let us forever bless God that in a dying world we are able to turn to a living Savior. That's what you need to know about Jesus' ministry. That he came into the world anointed with the Spirit and steeped in prayer and claimed by the Father and and the delight of his perfection knew no bounds. And he did it all so that he could be numbered with those who are weak in prayer and cold of heart and dying of sin. He did it all so that when he had paid for the sins of his elect, he should send his own spirit to anoint his people, to unite them to himself in a faith that is not of their own creation. Jesus came to be numbered with the transgressors so that he would number the transgressors among the children of God. So that at the last day, the Lord can look not just on you and me, but he can look on Christ and he can say, this is my beloved, and in Christ, in you, I am well pleased. This is why Christ has come. This is why he prayed so fervently and continues to pray for all of his children. This is why he sends the very Holy Spirit that anointed him on that day of baptism. This is what the Lord does when he looks on Christ in us and us united to him by faith. He calls us his children. He calls us beloved. He promises that in him, in us, he is delighted. And he welcomes us to himself. That is what Jesus' ministry is all about. Won't you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your perfection. We have none of our own to offer. We have no merits of our own with which we can stand before the heavenly throne, but you are the one who stands, indeed who sits at the right hand of the Father, always living to make intercession for us. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that as we see ourselves, in a sense, in this genealogy coming and going and passing away, that we would look to you, the living Savior, 
the one who always lives for us, one who gave himself as a ransom for many to redeem us from the power of our own sin, to unite us to yourself and to raise us up where you are. I thank you for the promises that you give us and we pray that you would give us your spirit and that we would believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the grace and merit of Christ. We come to a table that consists of two symbols, two signs and seals of God's covenant love for